Mark chapter 10, we're speaking on marriage and divorce today. This is not, again, the topic that you typically pick for a Sunday morning sermon. But again, as you, I said last week, that we are preaching expository here at Lighthouse, which means that whatever those passages the Lord gives us is what we go through. And so we see this as from the Lord today. Mark chapter 10, Jesus talked about marriage and divorce because the Pharisees tried to use this topic to trap Jesus. And so you can see that in Mark chapter 10, look in verse 1. It says that he, that's Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them in verse 2. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So they were trying to trap him. And Jesus responded to them by appealing to the authority of Scripture. And he he first explains his position on marriage. And then he concludes on what you should not do. And that is end the marriage. And so last week we studied that marriage is a God-designed structure. And this week, we're going to study that marriage is a God-joined union. So first, let me draw your attention to marriage is a God-joined union. Marriage is a covenant of oneness made before God, joined together by God. So if you want to get your bulletin out, get a pen out, you can write that down. We'll have four points this morning. So marriage is a covenant of oneness made before God, and joined together by God. Let me first focus on that first part, and that is, it is a covenant of oneness. We see that in verses 6 through 8. So look down in verse 3. The Bible says that Jesus answered them, and he says, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. But, and this is where he teaches on oneness, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. So God made two different genders to come together as one in marriage. In verse 7, therefore a man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So verse 6 teaches that God created this marriage, or God made them male and female. He did that on purpose. God made you different on purpose. And sometimes we like to say, oh my, but we should actually say, praise the Lord. Because actually, God uses these unique, unique giftings that he gives to men and women to fulfill their biblical role in the marriage so they can function to fulfill their purpose, their purpose in life, and to bring God glory. So marriage is a covenant of two people coming together, covenanting together as one. And what does that look like? Well, verse 7 says, you should leave your father and mother. So you, you leave your previous loyalties and obligations, and you make a new primary allegiance. You hold fast to your wife or, and your husband there. So there's a covenant. There's a covenant where you cling to your spouse for life, there's the permanence of marriage. So you, you promise that you will faithfully love 
and you'll serve that person uniquely, exclusively for life. And then verse 8, the two become one flesh. And so marriage creates a union where two become one. So it's a covenant, I say, of, of oneness. And, and notice how Jesus spoke about this. In fact, if you look at verse 8, this is a quote actually from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And we looked at that last week. And Jesus gives a commentary on this verse. He says, look at verse 8. He says, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus concluded, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. So it's like there's this new creation that God makes. So in the first week of creation, on day six, God created male and female. And then when he brought them together, it's like this new creation of two becoming one. That's kind of a neat idea, isn't it? Kind of special. What does that mean? I mean, you look at this when he says that God, in verse nine, that he creates this, this unity, this union. What does that mean? Look at verse nine. The Bible says, Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So, so Jesus taught a very important point about marriage here, and that is two come together as one. But what does it mean that God joins those two together? You ever thought about that? What does it actually look like in real life? So I kind of came up with some ideas of what I think that the Bible, what this means. First of all, I think that what God has joined together, what that phrase means when Jesus said that, means that marriage is, first of all, God's holy institution. He is the one that started marriage, and he is the one that joins marriages together. So God owns it. He owns marriage. And secondly, I think it means that marriage involves a special work of God. So that covenant... You made, if you're married, between that husband and wife, the covenant you made on that day you got married, it was made before God. Think about this. It was actually confirmed by God. I was thinking back to the day that Dana and I got married, and I was thinking, she has changed so much, and I haven't changed very much at all. (laughs) Now, I was thinking, how she really looks about the same, and I've lost a little bit of hair and maybe added some other things as well. But, you know, lots, lot, a lot can change during those years. But on that day, there was something very special that God did. And that actually should blow our minds away a little bit. That God does this unique, special work. There's this earthly covenant you make between a man and a woman. A man and a woman makes an earthly covenant. And it's ratified by heavenly confirmation. That's pretty amazing. And, it, and I think it's interesting that it's actually... Universal. In fact, this is kind of my next point here, and that is it doesn't matter whether you are Christian or atheist or Buddhist, God does this special work in every marriage that's on earth. And so, secondly, what God has joined, or thirdly, what God has joined together also means that God is the Lord of marriage. And again, it's whether people recognize it or not, He is the one who joins marriages together. And and his ideal is this. His ideal is that within your marriage, if you're married, his ideal is that you would live as if he is the Lord of your marriage. And I actually really believe that the best marriages are those marriages that actually live in submission to God, recognizing he's Lord 
and, and, and serving one another, loving one another, first and foremost, loving God and then loving that other person, recognizing that Jesus is Lord. And last, I think what God has joined together means this, and that there's a unique and powerful bond of attachment that God engineered to take place between a man and a woman. Think about that. I mean, marriage creates this, this amazing fusion together of two people, two bodies, two minds, two emotional beings, two relational networks, two economic situations, and two lives are fused together to be one. And marriage weaves together this two into one and creates a unique and powerful bond that sticks together like glue. And that's actually on purpose. God did that. And think about it. That's probably why it's so painful when people try to rip those apart. So think about all the all that uh, comes when a man and a woman comes together in marriage and just how they're bonded together. And God designed that so that they would stay together for life. In fact, I thought I would do a little illustration this morning. Isaac, you want to come up and help me, buddy? I was, last night I had this, had this idea. I was like, how can you illustrate this? And I thought, well, I found two pieces of wood in our shed out there. And I, don't, I think it takes 24 hours for glue to dry. But I took this wood glue right here. And this isn't just any wood glue. I'm going to do a little advertisement. This is Gorilla Glue. Pretty amazing glue. And I, and I took some drops between these pieces of wood. Well, actually, it went from like drops to like pouring out on it. But anyways, took some drops and put it on there. And I was thinking, you know, marriage is, is kind of like this in kind of an earthly way. But you have two, two people coming together. And there's a bond that God gives us. I mean, he engineered marriage to have this bond between two people. And actually, it works pretty well, right, when it stays together. But you try to take this apart. What do you think is going to happen to this piece, these pieces of wood when you take this apart? You think it's going to come to get, come apart very easily? So I, I thought, my, you want to try it? Isaac, you want to see if you can do it? Okay, here we go. We'll see. We're going to give him this here. Maybe you should come down here and try it. I don't want to ruin the stage. So let's see here. You want to try to... So you hold that right there? Okay. Hold that part up there. I'm going to, I'm going to hit it with my hammer. Here we go. Now, just so you know, I've only cut my thumb off once. So I've only missed once in my life. So here we go. That's a true story, by the way. If you don't know, you can ask me afterwards. Okay, here we go. Let's try to get this thing apart. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's going to come apart. Okay, and I could keep trying to do that. There you go. Thank you, Isaac. Good job, buddy. You can take a seat. I could, cut, I could keep trying to do that. But you notice, notice what happens to this piece of wood when we try to take it apart. You know, God, God intended two people to come together for life. And honestly, when someone passes away, that's very painful, right? There's a sense where they pass away. It's obviously God's will that happens. But you know what's even more painful is when people try to take their marriages apart and divorce. And I think, I think God actually intended that to be very painful because he actually intended it to be permanent. So marriage is a covenant of oneness made before God, joined together by God. But also, let's see here. I got to figure this thing out here. They're not going to the next one. Well, you'll have to write it down yourself. Next one is divorce dissolves the marriage covenant. Divorce dissolves the marriage covenant. Uh, There we go. You got it going. The next few points may be a little bit boring, okay? And I will, well, let me first say I think they're important points, though. 
I will concede as well that there are many different opinions on the positions I'm going to present here. Uh, It's my desire to be faithful to God's word. It's tempting when you speak on topics like this to take our backgrounds and our experiences and to superimpose them upon the text of scripture. And, and, And therefore, unfortunately, sometimes what we conclude is what we want to conclude, not necessarily what the scriptures conclude. So I don't want to do that. So I just want to try to look at the scriptures, study them, see what they say, and try to teach that. But again, there's there's entire seminary um, shelving shelves that try to exegete these passages and give their positions. And good men differ on these positions here. So the second point about the divine union is that divorce dissolves the marriage covenant. Jesus said that the one who joins the marriage together and to notice. Notice the command, they should, not let, they should not separate. Verse 9, what God therefore has joined together, what's the command? Let not man separate. So God intended it to be inseparable and lifelong. And so, and I will just say before I get into the next point, that Jesus' main point, I think, in this verse here, is that you should not divorce your spouse because God originally intended marriage to be permanent. But before we get into the permanence, let me... I think, note this in this passage and kind of like settle on this here. And that is, I believe we can infer from this verse right here that Jesus believed separation was possible. This is just a statement of fact. I'm not saying if you should or shouldn't divorce here. You'll see that conclusion I have in a second. But I'm just stating the fact. And that is, is that I think it's possible, according to this verse right here, that, that divorce dissolves the marriage. It's possible that there can be a separation of divorce. And, you know, again, possible doesn't mean you should, right? Possible doesn't equal it's approved by God, right? It's possible for me to jump out of an airplane, but it's maybe not, you know, the best thing for me to do. Not skydiving anytime soon, just put it that way. But look look at verse 9 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus suggested that it's possible for a God-joined union to be separated. Jesus says... God joined the marriage together as one. Therefore, a person should not separate that into two. Listen to what Kevin DeYoung says here. He says, marriage is not uh, indissoluble. This means marriage really can end. Now, usually they shouldn't, but they can. The covenant can be severed, though. When Jesus said what God has joined together, let no man separate, he implies that the couple can be separated. And I mention this because sometimes people will argue against remarriage saying she's still married in God's eyes. And I don't think that is the right way to talk about this situation. Divorced couples are divorced. They are not married in God's eyes. The question is also uh, whether they should still be married and hence they ought not to be with another man or woman. And so my whole point in quoting that right there is just the idea that that when someone is divorced, I believe that actually does dissolve the marriage. In fact, notice in verse 4 what Jesus says in response here, or the Pharisees say in verse number 4, they say in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And then notice how Jesus responds. And Jesus didn't disagree with them. Yep, Moses did actually allow that. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But he explains why Moses allowed it. It's because you had hard hearts. But again, the passage infers that divorce back then ended the marriages. And that was not contested by Jesus. Another example I think that is actually an important one is in John 4, 17 and 18. This is when Jesus is at the 
the well with the woman at the well. And of course, remember that woman, she had been married five times and divorced five times. And then she was living with a man in immorality. And it's interesting how Jesus interacts with this woman. And he says in verse, the Bible says in verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And so uh, remember, she had been divorced five times, was not currently living with a man. And so how did Jesus respond? He says, you are right in saying I have no husband. Now think about that. She says, I have no husband, but she's been married and divorced five times. And he says, you're right. You have no husband. So if it's true that a person who is divorced is still married to that person, the last person they were married to, then Jesus wouldn't be correct here. Right. But Jesus clearly says, no, you are. It's true. You have no husband. So. So Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband. Verse 18, for you have had in the past, you have had in the past five husbands. So again, he didn't say you have a husband. You said you have had those husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. So that's because she's living with him in immorality. And what you have said is true. So she was married and divorced five times, yet Jesus said she was not married now. So this is just an example, I think, that of this point I'm trying to give here this morning. This passage indicates that her divorces dissolved the marriage covenants. And, and so she got saved that day. So definitely after she got saved, she should not live with that man anymore. She should have left him. And she might be, should go back to some of those men and apologize for maybe how she acted and seek forgiveness from them. And, but, uh, but she was no longer a married woman. So why is this all important? Well, look down in verse uh, 11 and 12. Some people take these verses here to mean that a divorced person remains perpetually married to the former spouse they divorced. And, and some people even look at this and they say that that person's living in continuous adultery until they get remarried back to that person. And I would concede and say this, and that is that a person... Jesus is clear they are committing adultery in some way, so there needs to be some kind of repentance. But actually, I would say it's probably a miss, in my, my view, a misunderstanding of how to, to look at those verses. So I don't believe Jesus was teaching that anyone who gets a divorce is living in perpetual adultery, adultery because they're still married to the former spouse in God's eyes. So I don't believe that's true. Why is that? Well, number one, I think it's because what we spoke of earlier, the other scriptures indicate that, and I know some of this might be boring to some of you, but just hang on with me, okay? I think other scriptures indicate that divorce ends a marriage. Therefore, that would be a contradiction in scripture, and I don't think the scriptures contradict. Number two, the second reason I think is found in the historical context of this passage, and that is in the first century Judaism, people like the Pharisees divorced as a way to commit legal adultery. Okay, so let me kind of explain what that is like. Basically, what that, how that worked is that, you know, if you were tired of your wife or tired of your husband— or if you met, especially if you met someone that was better, you know, like I'm more like that guy said, I'm more compatible with this woman. Then you could justify getting with that person by getting a divorce. And they would say, well, it's legal, right? I mean, Moses said it's possible to do. It's, it's okay. And, and I'm doing it a legal way. Therefore, it's okay in God's eyes. And so what Jesus was doing here is saying, uh, no, actually, that's still adultery. You might justify it by saying it's legal and God in the Old Testament, Moses allowed divorce, but actually in God's eyes, that's still committing adultery. And if you say, well, I'm going to marry that man, even though, you know, he was with that woman, it's like you, if you encourage the divorce and remarriage, then you are also committing adultery. So you kind of see what the, the distinction there is. So my understanding of verses 11 and 12 is that the Pharisees used divorce as a way to justify and sanction their adultery. 
And God opposes those who use divorce as a legal loophole to say, oh, God's okay with this to fulfill their lustful desires. So let me give you a scenario. Maybe a man says like this. Man says, well, my wife's not fulfilling me, but that woman, I think she's more compatible. I think she actually will. So therefore, I'm going to divorce my wife and I'm going to marry that woman. As you kind of saw in the earlier, earlier video, right? That's so the guy kind of justified it in his mind. And he's saying, Jesus is saying here, actually, no, you're still committing adultery by doing that. Or maybe a woman thinks, I don't feel close to my husband, but, but that other man, he makes me feel special. I think I'd rather be with him. So I'll divorce my husband and, and marry this man. And he, Jesus is saying, yeah, you might think it's all legal and justified in God's eyes, but it's actually not. You are still a person who's committing adultery. And therefore, you need to repent of that. So look at verse 11. Let's read it then with this understanding. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another, and that person therefore thinks, oh, it's legal, so it's okay with God. No, actually, they commit adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And so, therefore, that's a sin in God's eyes, and there doesn't need to be repentance there, okay? But that's kind of if you want to say the boring part of the message, hopefully it's not too boring, but let me kind of illustrate it in this way. There's a, there's a friend of Dana and mine um, that don't live in California here, and they're about our age, have some children, and uh, one of the um, spouses in the marriage this past year uh, committed an affair. And so the, this person that committed an affair decided they were going to divorce um, their other spouse and then go and marry this other person. And this is the justification that this person used. They said this, God wants to make me happy. And I am not happy in this marriage, so I'm getting a divorce. So, so you see what she did there is she took God and used him to pacify her conscience and justify her divorce. Very similar to what these Pharisees were doing when for, for them, fortunately, I guess unfortunately, they were in charge of the religious system so they could devise it however they wanted so they'd even feel better about themselves. And so, and, and by the way, God does want you to have joy, but joy is not found in fulfilling your lustful desires. You know, when you follow your lustful desires, it turns in, into sin, and sin, when it's finished, does not end in joy, ends in destruction and death. Uh, James chapter 1 says, and joy is found in the presence of God and following him. And so, so anyways, that's kind of the, idea behind that. So divorce dissolves the marriage covenant. And number three, divorce is opposed by God and is never encouraged or commanded. So divorce is opposed by God and never encouraged in the scriptures or commanded. Look at verse two of Mark 10. And the Pharisees came up in order to test Jesus and ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So again, remember the Pharisees believed that God actually was in favor of their divorces and that it was legal. And the question for them was not if they should get divorced or not. They thought that was fine with God. They used the, the verse, we're going to look at a verse they look at, they used Deuteronomy 24. We're going to look at that later to justify it. The question for them was not um, if it was legal. The question is, for what reason could you get a divorce? And most Pharisees fell into the category that you could basically divorce for any reason. In fact, let me read the full question they asked in Matthew 19, the Bible says the Pharisees came to him and test, to test him and asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So you can see what's kind of behind this. It's just not like, can they get divorced? It's like, is it really, can it be for any reason? And according to what we understand about the Pharisees, that was actually their position. 
that, listen, if you find a woman that's more beautiful than your wife, just divorce your wife and marry her, you know? If she burns the toast, divorce your wife and marry her. So that was their thought of how things work. And they justified it because like Moses allowed it, right? In fact, look at verse three. Jesus answered and said, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And kind of the thought for them is as long as you do that in the right way, then God's okay with everything. That's fine. Well, there's two problems with the Pharisees view. And first, allowance for something does not equal approval. So think about that. Allowance does not equal approval. So for instance, you might be driving down the road and you see a police officer, woo, pulls over a guy. He pulls over a known criminal. And so you fly by that police officer at 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Police officer might see you, maybe even clock you, but he might take care of the criminal, the other criminal, (laughs) the other criminal first and not, and just basically allow you to go by. Does that mean the police officer then approves of your going 15 miles an hour over the speed limit? No. So approval, or I should say allowance, allowing something does not mean that it's approved. So God allowed something in Deuteronomy, but doesn't necessarily mean it was approved. And we'll talk about that in a moment as well. The Pharisees also, number two, were wrong in their view on on their proof text. So do this with me. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. You can study this passage if you want to. But basically, Deuteronomy 24 is, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. And Deuteronomy 24 is, is a, passage that deals with actually remarriage after divorce. So this passage was written to give instruction on remarriage after divorce, not to give permission for divorce, which is how the Pharisees were using it. They pull out one part of an if statement there in Deuteronomy 24, and they were like, ha ha, God gives permission for it, therefore we can do it. But actually it was not written for that purpose. Evidently at this point in Israel's history, Divorce was a common practice. And so, uh, and, and remember, just because something was allowed or maybe even something was described in the scriptures doesn't mean God gives his approval. Let me give you another example. You know, you think about Jacob, who was the patriarch, one of the patriarchs, and a man that we look up to and, and believe that God used in a great way. And, but he had two wives and two concubines. So for some reason, God allowed that. And, and also, it's definitely clearly... Uh, described in the scriptures. So does his practice and God's allowance instruct us on how many wives men are allowed to have? No, like we understand that it's not how that works, right? And so that's the same thing is happening in Deuteronomy. There's rampant divorce in Israel. And so God comes in and he gives some if statements and a conclusion. He's trying to restrict the uh, remarriage that they have happening in Israel. So look at Deuteronomy 24. So I want you to notice that the first three verses are if statements. So he doesn't command really anything until verse four. So verse one, when a man takes a wife and marries her, then first if statement, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So they get divorced. Verse two, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, so she gets remarried, Verse 3, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. So she gets divorced again. That's confusing, right? She's married, gets divorced, again, gets remarried, and gets divorced again. Does that make sense? Okay. And then, or if the latter man dies, 
who took her to be his wife, so death or divorce. Verse 4, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. And so, again, it's just God here is regulating, frankly, their sin. Like, they're already divorcing. They're sinning in that way. And he's saying, listen, when you're divorcing like this, Moses is saying, don't, don't go back to the first wife that you had. If you, if you marry and you divorce and then you, that person marries and they get divorced again. It, and I think what he's doing here is basically he's trying to restrict, you know, easy adultery and easy, you know, I, I regret. Like, oh, I, I wish I was, I like my former wife better. I'm just going to divorce my wife and go back to this wife. It's like, no, no, the decision's been done and the direction is made. So, so notice these, in these statements, though, that Moses did include some things. And one was that there must be some kind of legal document that states why there is divorce. And that's what the Pharisees took. And they were like, ha ha. Therefore, God approves of our divorce as long as there's a legal document. So that's kind of their, their reasoning. But did God approve of their divorce? Divorces? No. So go back to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And Jesus explains why. Because they say, well, why did he say that then? Why did God, why, basically, why did Moses allow this? And then in Mark chapter 10, in verse 5, Jesus answers them. And he says, in verse 5, because of your hardness of heart. And notice how he says your. <laughs> like, it's not just them. It was actually you are doing the same thing. Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this commandment. In other words, they're. Their hearts were already hard in this particular area, and therefore Moses was restricting certain forms of remarriage. So, again, maybe a little bit boring for you, but number three is divorce. God is opposed to divorce, and he does not encourage or command it. In fact, let me do another passage, and I'll just read this. You can look at the screen up here. Malachi chapter 2, Bible says God hates divorce. And you might say, well, why is that? Well, he says here in verse 14, he says, for you say, yet you say, for what reason? And it's kind of the idea is, why is God displeased with us? You say God's displeased with us. Why is God displeased with us? And the answer is because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. In other words, you made a covenant with your wife. God actually sees that you are not fulfilling that covenant and you have actually transgressed that covenant. Yet she is your companion and the wife by covenant. So the first reason God hates it is because you're breaking a covenant that you made before God. In verse 15. Yep, verse 15. But he did not, but did he not make them one? So again, going back to Genesis Chapter 2, he made them one, having a remnant of the Spirit. And why one? Why does God bring two together for one? He seeks a godly offspring. So the second reason God hates divorce is that divorce, divorce destroys the oneness of the covenant and destroys the marriage and the family. Particularly here, he's talking about destroys the children, the offspring within that family. He seeks a godly offspring offspring therefore take heed to your spirit and let no one dear deal treacherously with the wife of his youth for the lord god of israel says that he hates divorce for it covers one's garment with violence says the lord of hosts therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously and so god hates divorce and you might think that god hates it in a way that's that he's 
he's angry towards it, and he's very distant from it. But actually, God hates divorce kind of like a divorcee hates divorce. Because you realize that in Jeremiah chapter 3, the Bible says that God divorced Israel because of their idolatry. And so he divorced Israel. And so the God, when what happened in that situation is God had a heart for them and a love for them. They rejected him. He, in some sense, separated himself and divorced himself from them. And so Israel hurt his heart and grieved him. And so that's how God views it. Actually, God has a lot of tenderness about the situation of divorce, and it grieves his heart. And so therefore, that's why Jesus says, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And the last one, again, is, there you go. Last one is divorce is permitted in certain situations, but marriages should always seek reconciliation. So again, another one that, another point that some people disagree on, and uh, you can study it for yourself and see what the Lord says about this in the scriptures. But Mark, chat, Mark wrote, Mark 10, 1 through 12, to pass on the teaching that G, of Jesus that marriage was created by God to be a lifelong covenant of oneness. But actually, Jesus taught more about this topic than what's written here in Mark chapter 10. So flip back with me to Matthew chapter 19. And this is a parallel passage. So everything that Jesus taught was not written down in the Gospels. And even when we see certain teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, there's probably a lot more that was there, and they just summarized that. So you can see that when they record Jesus' teachings. And so when you compare Matthew and Mark and Luke's and John's Gospel, sometimes there's some differences. And the idea is, is that it's not like verbatim everything that he said. It's, there's a lot of summary that takes place. And you can see in, in Matthew chapter 19 that Jesus talks about this. As you're turning there, let me just read for you Matthew 531, put it up on the screen here, and it says, Furthermore, Jesus said, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So again, kind of the same idea we talked about earlier, that they were saying, oh, it's allowed because Moses says it, but he's saying, actually, divorcing your wife and going for another woman, that's actually still adultery. Verse 32, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason, and then he gives an exception, accepts Sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. So Jesus taught against, again, divorce here. But notice he actually gives a little exception there. He says, except for sexual immorality. And so if you look down in Matthew chapter 19, you can see the same thing. Matthew 19, 9. Jesus says, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but this is the same passage that, um, it's a parallel passage to Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, and then he adds, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So again, these texts, Jesus clearly opposes divorce. But in two of these texts, Jesus gave an exception for divorce. And so the question that many books and articles and theologians have spent many years of their life studying is what does that mean right there? What does, the, what does it mean by if you have a King James fornication or if you have a modern translation, sexual immorality, or if you have a Greek translation, the word is actually pornea. What is that actually talking about? What is that exception? Let me say this. I actually have printed off some, an article here that I would recommend to you if you really want to study this more. And it's by Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. And 
um, a seminary that I would say is a pretty good one in, in regard to their uh, conservative theological positions, and a guy named Andrew Maselli. And, uh, and so I'll have these up here. I printed some off. I can print some more. If you want to study it more, you can come up and get those afterwards. Um, but you're sitting there going, Ben, will you just tell us what it means? Okay. So let's get into it. I'm, again, there's a lot of positions on it. I'm going to give you probably the two most common out there. And the first view is that this word pornea or sexual morality is speaking of an illegitimate marriage. Now, the word pornea actually is speaking of any type of sexual activity outside of marriage. So it's not just adultery. It's any type of activity, sexual activity outside of marriage. But some people say, well, that's actually here. Jesus is actually saying something specific. He's saying it's a specific type of immorality that is that leads that uh, results in an illegitimate marriage. For instance, someone ar- some argue that when the Jewish people would read this, they would read pornea there and they would see, oh, that's talking about incest. And, of course, if you're in an incestuous relationship, that's not a legitimate marriage. Therefore, you should divorce. Or some people look at that and they say, oh, well, that actually is talking about someone maybe who lied about um, their activity, sexual activity, before they got married. And, therefore, when they entered that marriage, if you found that 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 happened and they lied about it, therefore, you can divorce them. So some people take that position that it's speaking of an illegitimate marriage. Number two, the second position is the one I take, and that is that sexual immorality or pornea is speaking of a person who commits sexual sin outside of marriage, which, again, is what the word means and is the most common use of it. So that includes adultery, but can be broader than that to include other types of sexual sins like homosexuality and incest and and other things like that. So therefore, I believe the exception Jesus gave here was this, that divorce is permitted in marriage when unrepentant sexual immorality has taken place. Let me read that again, that divorce is permitted in a marriage when unrepentant sexual immorality has taken place. So if one party in the marriage breaks the oneness of the marriage covenant with sexual immorality, and if he or she is unrepentant, then I believe divorce is permitted according to what Jesus is teaching here. However, as we're going to see in a moment, I believe marriages should always seek reconciliation. But it seems clear to me that there's some type of exception that Jesus is giving here. And I have a hard time coming to the conclusion of the first one. I, just, I think there's some leaps you have to make and uh, some guesses you have to make there. And so I just believe this is, this is by the general plain reading of the scriptures and understanding of the words. I think this is what Jesus is talking about. I want you to notice, though, that I did put a word in there. And it is unrepentant. So I said that divorce is permitted in a marriage when unrepentant sexual immorality has taken place. And so what I believe is that it's God's desire that marriages would seek reconciliation. So if a, if a spouse sins in that way, one of those ways, and is repentant, I believe you should seek reconciliation. I think it's what God wants. And I, and I see that in, in, in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and other passages where it encourages us to pursue this reconciliation, to stay in the marriage if at all possible. And we read that passage earlier in our service, 1 Corinthians 7, earlier in our service. And I think also in other passages, God encourages spouses to stay together. So I think divorce should only happen in rare situations when a person persists in unrepentant sexual immorality. The other time I believe that the Bible teaches that divorce is permitted is in the desertion of a spouse. So if you want to, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're not going to study this. We did read it this morning in our service. 
But the issue that Paul raises is covenantal desertion, where the departing spouse is an unbeliever. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you can see down in verse number 10, Paul says to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate, should not get divorced from her husband. But if she does, if she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And then if you look down in verse number 15, the Bible says, but if the unbeliever, and so the idea here, he's saying you need to stay with them. If, if that's possible, stay with them. And verse 15, but if the unbeliever, so if you're married to someone who's not a believer and they depart from you and they want to get a divorce, then a brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So Paul says that if you have an unbelieving spouse, don't divorce them, stay with them and give them the gospel so that they can have the gospel by the testimony of your life. But if an unbelieving husband decides to desert his spouse, the Christian is not bound to the marriage covenant. And not bound, I mean, I think, means that they're no longer obligated to stay in that covenant. They're free to remarry, to stay single, or to reconcile with that person. So, so I believe the Bible permits divorce in certain situations. But also, I believe this is the one part I really want you to get. So if you don't get anything else, get this. Marriages should always seek reconciliation. Reconciliation is the work of Jesus Christ. That's the work he's doing in this world. He joined. Well, again, I want to conclude by really encouraging us to focus, I think, what God wants us to focus on. And that is that, that his work he's doing right now in our world and in our church is a work of reconciliation. And he gives us that ministry of reconciliation. You know, marriage, really, and I could say it this way, our church is not full of a bunch of people who are perfect, holy, uh, wonderful people. <laughs> we're full of a church who are people who were dead in their trespasses and sins, who were wicked sinners, but are now forgiven and raised by Christ, redeemed and cleansed and reconciled to God. In fact, I think of one of the best passages to talk about this is actually when Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, and he says that don't be deceived that the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers or men who practice homosexuality, like they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, such were some of you. <laughs> so when you're tempted to rail against people who sin, look at yourself in the mirror. But he says, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit of God. And so in other words, God can change people. He can change people. And if you're in a marriage in here and there's some major struggles you're working through, look for the door of reconciliation. Don't look for the door of separation. One of the reasons God hates divorce is the pain it causes him, but also the pain it causes everyone around you, including your children. And that's honestly if your kids are grown or if they're in the house still. So the best option for broken marriages is not further destruction, but reconciliation. So if you're in a broken marriage, you need to pray. Pray for your spouse. Pray for yourself. Show Christ to yourself. 
Show Christ to your spouse by serving them. Be humble and seek God's grace. Pursue reconciliation. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great at some point in the future, you could say our marriage was broken and included some bad things, but such were we. But now we're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're in a broken marriage, let me marriage, let me call you to the greatest ministry of all, and that is the ministry of reconciliation. In fact, let me just read that verse for you. Second Corinthians five eighteen. Maybe you should make this your verse if you're in a struggling marriage. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us. So if you're a Christian, that's you, to Himself, and He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So let me talk to a couple groups. That was the the married. If you're divorced in here, and if you look back on it and you think I was very selfish and sinful, and I have never gone back and apologized to anyone in that situation. Let me encourage you to consider asking God for forgiveness and anyone you wronged, and then to live in the forgiveness and the cleansing of Christ. Like being divorced doesn't make you a lower person in this world, okay? It's like any other struggle or sin that someone either commits against someone else or that someone commits, right? And so you're not a marked person. Live in the light of who you are in Christ. If you're divorced and neither of you are remarried, so let me think about this. Like if you're divorced and neither of you are remarried and you're Christians, consider, let me encourage you to consider reconciling that marriage if possible. So you're divorced and neither of you have been remarried and you're both Christians, consider reconciling that divorce if possible. If you're divorced and you're remarried, commit yourself to the covenant of oneness with your current wife. And it might be that if you're in a situation, you might say, and I'm making a lot of mistakes I've made before, then maybe you should go get help together and seek some counseling. Another group of people, if you're single for whatever reason, whether you're widowed or maybe you just uh, haven't been married for whatever reason, and especially if you're dating or you're wanting to date, let me encourage you as you inch towards the possibility of marriage to seek out spiritual guidance. Speak, seek out spiritual guidance before you enter into that marriage. And I would just really, really encourage you by reading and by talking to, to men and women who have been through marriages and are in marriages to really seek to understand what it means to be in a covenant of oneness before God and joined together by God. And so I would encourage you, if you're dating, to take off the rose-colored glasses, okay, and walk through your dating and into your marriage with your eyes wide open, aware as much as you can of who that person is. So I do a lot of premarital counseling, and I have a lot of couples, oh, yeah, we're doing that. And over and over, you just your heart just longs. Would you just really drop all the, the cloaks, right, and just be who you really are? And, and then actually look at that person in light of who they actually are, not who you want them to be, okay? Because that person, who they really are, is who the person is really going to be when you're married, right? And so, and then once you get married, then promise to love and serve that person and then put on the I will always love and endure with you glasses, okay? And if you're married and you're facing struggles, I would encourage you to humble yourself and seek 
a voice that is speaking God's word into your life. Seek a voice that can help you guys. A lot of times people struggle in their marriage and things are boiling up. And then when it's about to explode, they come and say, oh, help us. We're about to file for divorce next week. And it's just almost, it's not, nothing's too late. Like God can work, but it's like, wow, wouldn't it have been better if a number of years ago you would have come and humbled yourself and, and asked for help. And so I just encourage you, if you're in that situation, it's like, it's boiling. And you're like, this is really, we're having a lot of problems. You, and you might think, well, it's never going to happen. I'm never getting divorced. But I'm just going to say, please come back to the idea that maybe God wants you to talk to someone. And let me just say, it's kind of the reason that God has a church, right? Again, we're not in here to be like, oh, we're a bunch of really great people. We never have struggles, you know? And it's like, actually, we're a bunch of sinners who are in need of God's grace. So if you're in here and you're single and you're like, never get married, single for life, great. If God's given you that gift. And that is actually a good thing. So don't necessarily laugh about that. No. But I would say commit yourself to, to serving the church. And also this. Would you pray for the couples in our church who are married? That's actually a ministry you can have. Because that can be something that can really hurt the church when marriages fall apart. And it can be something that helps the church when marriages do well. And so the point is, is that we all have a part in this. Now I'll confess that these last two weeks were probably the hardest two messages I preached at Lighthouse here. And not necessarily the ones I wanted to preach, that's for certain. These aren't the ones you get up in the morning and think, I can't wait to preach this message. But I do believe it is what God has for us. And so I'd encourage you in here, as we go to prayer in a moment, if you're married, maybe, maybe you can grab the hand of your spouse and you can pray with me as I pray and just pray in your own heart and ask God to help you and actually evaluate what, what should you do to help create um, oneness in your marriage before God. And uh, maybe what steps um, you need to take if you're having some struggles. And, uh, and if you're in here and you're divorced, actually, you know, you're remarried or whatever, I, ho- I hope this has actually been a help to you and not a hurt. But if you have any questions, I would love to talk to you. Again, I have some documents. If you want to study it, it's right there. <laughs> if you want to talk. I'm right here, and I'd love to talk to you. And my hope is that we can bring glory to God in no matter what messes we've made or what messes other people have put us in. Because I recognize sometimes in divorce, people sin against us, and so that's difficult. No matter what mess we're in, God can restore us, and he can use us for his glory. So let's bow our heads and let's pray to the Lord. Father, I believe you have put texts of scripture in the Bible for our benefit, that everything that we have in your word here is breathed out by the Holy Spirit through men of old, and it is profitable for us. And so no matter who people are in here today, whether they're single or divorced and remarried or divorced and not married or married or struggling or whatever it is, all of us right now as as believers, we look to you and we want to please you and bring you glory and and trust in your grace and have your spirit empower us to really carry out the ministry of reconciliation that you've given to us. I pray over right now the, the marriages in our church and any marriage has a possibility of falling apart. 
And every marriage has broken people in that marriage. So God, I pray first and foremost that each person in here that is in a committed uh, covenant oneness relationship with each other through marriage, I pray that they will first and foremost go home today and they will seek to love you above all else. with All their heart, all their strength, all their mind, their whole person. And then they will seek to love their neighbor, most importantly for them, that person they're married to, more than they love themselves. So I pray you'll give us healthy marriages in here that seek continually seek reconciliation. Sometimes it's even small things, some just really ridiculous things that we get upset about. Meals and toys and you know things that just really are just pieces of plastic and dust and don't matter for eternity. But help us to remember that person matters. I think about uh, maybe couples in here who are dating and they're looking for the possibility of one day marrying. And I pray over them and ask that you will help them in this and these steps they're taking towards marriage, that they will be honest with with them, with you and with themselves and then with their spouse or not their spouse, with the person they're dating, their potential spouse. I pray they'll be honest. And I pray God, you just reveal what they're really like so the other person can see that so that commitment can be made with their eyes wide open. And, uh, and God, I pray that you'll help them to take steps of healthy preparation, uh, preparation for oneness someday. So God, I keep, pray you'll keep them pure in their mind and their body so that when they step into that wedding and they step into that marriage, God, they come together with uh, consciences that are clear. And God, I pray for those who are still suffering or are in the process of suffering because of divorce. And, oh God, there's, there's sometimes where, where people in the church sin through divorce, and sometimes there's people in the church that face the pain of sin of divorce. And so I pray for those who are sinfully pursuing divorce. I pray, God, you'll bring them to repentance. And I pray for those who are just experiencing the pain of that. Think about that 1 Corinthians seven fifteen person. It's like they're, their spouse is unbelieving, they're leaving, and now they have to feel the weight of this divorce. And it's the separation is so difficult. And so God, give them much grace. I pray that God, they will find joy in Christ and in his presence, even in spite of the terrible situation they find themselves pray as a church that we will come together in unity. There's so many different situations and scenarios that we have, different backgrounds we have in here, but we have one thing in common, and that is we have you and what you've done in us. And so I pray we will be united in Christ. We will pray for each other. We will love each other. We will be there for each other. We'll lift each other up, and then we'll bring you glory together. Because that's our desire. We want our church. We want our marriages. We want our lives to bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.